and welcome to Relevant History. I'm Dan Toller. We have raised thee off the dunghill, and on the dunghill will we cast thee back again. I disown thee, and know thou of a surety that I will work on thee all the evil that is in my power from this day forward. Those were the parting words of Enrico Dandolo, the Doge of Venice, to Byzantine Emperor Alexios IV. If you're confused, that's because this is part two of a two-part episode. But here's a quick recap. Oh, and just a quick announcement, I will be out of town next week at a wedding, so there will be no episode. See you in two weeks. Anyway, in the year 1198, Pope Innocent III called for a crusade to conquer Egypt from the Ayyubid Sultan Al-Aziz. A band of young noblemen answered the call, and they contracted with Venice to build a fleet for transport. The fleet was delivered in the year 1202, Took a few years to get all this together with medieval technology and communications. But when the fleet was delivered, due to poor organization, only about a third of the expected crusaders actually showed up in Venice. Now, the crusaders themselves were paying for this fleet, and the idea was to have each individual knight or lord or soldier pay a certain fee, and that would cover the cost. But the smaller army could no longer afford it. All of a sudden, these knights were being asked to pay three times as much as they had expected to. So they struck a deal with Enrico Dandolo, the blind 95-year-old doge of Venice. And the deal was that the crusaders would help the Venetians to retake the city of Zadar on the Adriatic coast, which they had lost a few years ago to some rebels. With no other way to get to Egypt and already in for lots of money, the Crusaders agreed. So they went to Zadar and they ended up taking the city by force. Now, this attack on fellow Christians was outside the boundaries of a crusade and Pope Innocent excommunicated these Crusaders, but he soon reversed himself. At the same time, Alexios IV Angelos the rightful heir to the Byzantine throne offered to help the Crusaders if they helped him first. He offered them money and troops for their crusade in exchange for helping him to take back the city of the Constantinople from Alexios III, uh, an emperor who had in turn taken the throne from Alexios IV's father, Isaac II. Regardless, this attack on Constantinople would constitute yet another attack on a city of fellow Christians, which would fall outside the boundaries of a crusade, and a number of the crusaders, notably Simon of Montfort, left in disgust. But the rest of them went on, along with the Venetian fleet, and in June of 1203, they tried to get the Byzantine people to overthrow this usurper emperor, Alexios III, and accept Alexios IV. However, the people of Byzantium answered with arrows from the walls, and the crusaders ended up attacking the city in July of 1203 and taking it. Now... 
At first, the takeover was relatively benign. Uh, Alexios IV became emperor and co-ruled with his father Isaac, who had been imprisoned by Alexios III. Uh, however, Alexios was only able to pay the Crusaders about half of the money he had promised them, and only then was he able to do this by stretching the empire's finances to the breaking point. He also was not able to offer any military help uh, because he was too busy still trying to fight Alexios III, who had run off to Bulgaria and was running a rebellion. So in November of 1203, Alexios IV finally refused to pay any more money to the Crusaders, and that is when Enrico Dandolo pledged to destroy him. But this did not immediately lead to more violence. You see, at first the Venetians are not able to attack the city of Constantinople because of the weather. They are trying to attack mostly by sea, and the seas are choppy, even in the relatively sheltered waters of the Golden Horn, and the Venetians really need smooth seas, right? They have all kinds of catapults and siege ladders on their ships, and those things don't work if your ship is rocking around like crazy. So during this period of cold, wintry, windy weather, the Byzantines attempt to simply burn the Venetian fleet. Without their fleet, the Crusaders will be unable to attack and they will have to go home. There have been several times before already in history where Constantinople has successfully defended itself by burning an enemy fleet. Well, uh, twice, when the wind is blowing in the right direction, the Byzantines load up a bunch of merchant ships with wood and other flammable materials, and they set them on fire, and they allow them to drift towards the Crusader fleet when the winds are favorable. As it happens, both of these attempts fail. The Venetians are able to dispatch a few of their faster ships and throw grappling hooks onto the burning ships and tow them out into the Bosporus. And in all of this, only one Venetian ship is burned. And during this time, Alexios IV also has the walls of Constantinople strengthened and the towers built higher. So uh, the wall is uh, dotted periodically with towers that are you know, reinforced and full of archers and such. And these towers are built even taller with wood, uh, essentially to make them harder to uh, attack with ladders and things of that nature. And this standoff goes on from November 1203 to January 1204, without any actual combat. But Alexios has a very hard time actually leading his people and forming much of a coherent response. See, now would be a good time to mention something I left out last week, and as a matter of fact, I left it out a few minutes ago during my summary. I said that from Alexios IV taking power, the Crusader occupation of Constantinople was mostly benign. Well, 
that was true right at the beginning, but it didn't take very long for tensions to arise. And in August of 1203, rioting had broken out in the city of Constantinople between the Greek and Latin residents of the city. And during the riots, some of the crusaders had tried to plunder a mosque, but a bunch of Muslim and Christian Byzantines had defended the building and fought back and uh, forced these crusaders out of that part of the city. And to cover their retreat, those crusaders set a fire. Now, this fire was set at the north end of the city, and there was a stiff north wind blowing at the time. Well, the fire spread, and it spread like, well, wildfire, and the ensuing blaze burned uncontrolled for two days, with isolated hot spots remaining for over a week. Tens of thousands of Constantinople's residents were rendered homeless. There were also dozens of churches destroyed, along with most of the Forum of Constantine, Countless priceless artifacts, ancient treasures, all of the things that go along with much of an ancient city being burned. Even the famous Hagia Sophia was singed. And it is tough to overstate how severe this fire was and how badly it further soured relations between the Crusaders and the Greek residents of the city. American Crusades historian Thomas F. Madden compares the fire of Constantinople to the Great Fire of London in 1666, and he says it was worse. In his paper, The Fires of the Fourth Crusade in Constantinople, 1203-1204, A Damage Assessment, he writes, quote, Approximately 450 acres of the city's most opulent and most congested areas were reduced in two days to ashes and rubble. Again, the similarity with London's Great Fire are striking and useful. In 1666, London lost 436 acres of its most populous regions. Like London, Constantinople's densest area was filled with beautiful churches and homes, as well as pitiful squalor. Overcrowded, twin-story wooden slums set along wooden, winding roads afflicted both capitals. The two great fires were also of similar temperament. Like Constantinople, fierce winds whipsawed London's blaze and often propelled burning debris across the sky, thus setting the fire's seed elsewhere. The erratic nature of both fires made the relocation of goods a difficult task. Nicetas, whose losses were severe, noted how those who moved valuables to seemingly safe places soon learned that they were not safe at all. The fire, taking a winding course and moving in zigzag paths, destroyed the goods that had been moved. In London, it was the same. Streets were filled with people moving their possessions, many to the wrong places. A Dutch observer wrote that many people transferred their goods from place to place three times. The numerous parallels between the Great Fires of 1666 and 1203 facilitate an estimate of the physical damage sustained by Constantinople during its much more poorly documented catastrophe. 
In London, the Great Fire claimed 87 churches, 6 chapels, and 13,200 houses in over 400 streets and courts. Property in the British capital was approximately 10 million pounds. The number of houses and churches destroyed in Constantinople must have been comparable. The city on the Bosporus, of course, had many more monasteries than its sister on the Thames, but in Constantinople, the total value of lost property must have been much greater than in London. The Byzantine capital was immensely wealthy. Its churches and monasteries were filled with many kings' ransoms. As for the palaces destroyed, Nicetus tells us that they were filled with every delight, abounding in riches and envied by all. To these we must add Constantinople's storehouses of priceless art treasures and ancient manuscripts, many of which were incinerated in the second fire. London had very little to compare with such losses. Even John Don St. Paul's had fallen on hard times before its fiery demise. In 1666, the Restoration was just six years old. Puritan disdain for opulence was still very active in London. In Constantinople, such a concept was foreign in the extreme. The value of lost property, then, was many times greater in Constantinople in 1203 than in London in 1666. Because of the differences in types of goods and property lost, and the currencies in which they were valued, fixing a modern monetary equivalent to the destruction in Constantinople would be very difficult, and probably meaningless. Nevertheless, it would be a figure measured in billions, not millions, of American dollars. The citizens of Constantinople reacted to the Great Fire just as Londoners would do four and a half centuries later. They blamed foreigners. In London, the culprits were the French, Dutch, and any Catholic. Despite royal attempts to cool British heads, mob rule meted out harsh injustice to members of those groups unfortunate enough to be living in London in 1666. In Constantinople, it was the Latins who were blamed and persecuted. The difference was that Londoners were wrong. Their fire was an accident. Byzantines were right. Latins had indeed set their city aflame. While the fire raged, Latins of every stripe packed their bags, gathered their families, and fled across the Golden Horn to the welcoming arms of the Western Knights. According to Villehardouin, the refugees numbered 15,000, and it was to be a great boon to the Crusaders that they crossed over. Nicetus grieved that the fury of his countrymen unwittingly achieved the previously impossible, reconciling Pisans with Venetians. As a result, those Pisans who valiantly helped defend Constantinople in 1203 would enthusiastically help conquer it in 1204. Unquote. And while this great fire was certainly the worst disaster the Crusaders brought to Constantinople. It was certainly not the only one. There were several riots and incidents. And because Alexios IV not only was put in power by the Crusaders, but in fact invited them, many people in Constantinople blame him for bringing this calamity to their doorstep it makes it hard for him to lead. 
certainly makes it hard for him to lead as a credible anti-Latin ruler. And on January 25th, 1204, the Byzantine Senate convenes, and they vote to overthrow Alexios as well as his father Isaac and install a new emperor. On January 27th, the Senate, this ancient, centuries-old institution, performs its last known act. It declares a new emperor named Nicholas Cannabos. Now, Cannabos seems to have been chosen because he was a safe pick, but he is a young nobleman who doesn't seem to want power, and as soon as he's chosen, he runs off and hides in the basement of the Hagia Sophia and waits to see how things shake out. Most of the army, including the all-important Varangian Guard, an elite group of Norman Viking warriors, well, they stick with Alexios and Isaac, who barricade themselves in their palace. And Alexios IV, he asks a courtier named Alexios Dukas to contact the Crusaders for help. Alexios Dukas, sometimes called Mortzophilos or Mortzophiles by the historians, uh, he has his own ideas. See, he turns around and bribes the Varangian guard, and he has both emperors, Alexios IV and Isaac II, imprisoned, and he declares himself emperor. And with a promise to fight off this crusader army, rather than once again asking it for help, he wins the support of the general population. And around the same time, the old, blind co-emperor Isaac II dies, allegedly of shock. Now, the Venetians at first are not 100% opposed to Alexios Dukas taking the throne. As a matter of fact, they send a message to him, essentially saying that as long as he agrees to pay the debt which Alexios IV owes, they're fine with him. But he refuses. Right again, he has just promised the population that he's going to fight off these crusaders. Upon receiving this refusal, the crusaders send a response demanding that Alexios Dukas put Alexios IV back on the throne. And in response to that, on February 4th, 1204, Alexios Dukas has Alexios IV strangled to death. And as for Nicholas Cannabos, the young nobleman who was supposed to be elected emperor and is hiding out in the Hagia Sophia, well, Alexios Dukas offers him a senior cabinet position and a generous salary in exchange for giving up his claim. And Cannabos neither accepts Alexios Dukas' offer, nor does he reject it and fight to take the throne himself. He just keeps hiding in the basement of the Hagia Sophia, 
apparently waiting for the wind to change or something we don't really know. Uh, so Alexios Dukas sends some of his men into the Hagia Sophia and has Nicholas Cannabos dragged out and strangled on the steps of the church on February 8th. So in less than two weeks, this mid-level courtier, Alexios Dukas, Mortsopheles, has gone from just being one of many imperial officials to being the undisputed emperor of the Byzantine Empire, if he can hold on to it. Well, after Alexios Dukas takes over, there is another standoff uh, between the Byzantines and the Crusaders. Essentially, both sides are hoping that the other will back down or negotiate, and neither side does. And it is during this time that the leaders of the Fourth Crusade decide once again to change their mission objective. They're no longer content with settling a debt, not even a very large debt. They will now settle for nothing less than the conquest of the entire Byzantine Empire. And this attitude, this change in objective, is encouraged by a group of senior clerics. And this group includes none other than the papal legate, that is, a personal representative of the Pope who is authorized to act as if he has the Pope's authority. And this is a man named Peter of Capua. And Peter of Capua had been the Pope's personal representative in Jerusalem. Now, Pope Innocent had sent him to Constantinople to remind the Crusaders that the Crusade is in the Middle East and not in Byzantium. Well, instead, this papal delegation actually encourages the Crusaders to divide up the Byzantine Empire. And Geoffrey of Villehardouin, one of our sources and an eyewitness, writes of the meeting between some of the senior Crusaders after hearing of Alexios IV's strangulation. He says, quote, Soon it was clearly known both to the Greeks and to the French, that this murder had been committed as has just been told to you. Then did the barons of the host and the doge of Venice assemble in Parliament, and with them met the bishops and the clergy. And all the clergy, including those who had powers from the Pope, showed to the barons and to the pilgrims that anyone guilty of such a murder had no right to hold lands, and that those who consented thereto were abettors of the murder. And beyond this, that the Greeks had withdrawn themselves from obedience to Rome. Wherefore we tell you, said the clergy, that this war is lawful and just, and that if you have a right intention of conquering this land, to bring it into the Roman obedience, all those who die after confession shall have part in the indulgence granted by the Pope. And you must know that by this the barons and the pilgrims were greatly comforted. Unquote. Well, why does Peter of Capua do this? It would seem to be 
contrary to the instructions that Pope Innocent had given him, which were to redirect this crusader army back to the Middle East. And instead, he encourages them on this mission to take Byzantium. And truth be told, I don't know why Peter of Capua does this. From everything I've been able to find, he was an experienced diplomat, he had worked a number of deals in the past, and while people, including Richard the Lionheart and William Marshall, didn't like him, he seems to have been competent. Uh, He was a senior cardinal within the Catholic Church. He was the kind of person with the track record to indicate that you would expect him to perform competently here, and yet here he is completely blowing up his own mission. And he also doesn't seem to have done this for any kind of material gain. He doesn't seem to have taken more than a few relics as loot from Constantinople, so his motive can't have been greed. Was he really just that outraged by Alexius Dukas murdering Alexius IV that he decided to exercise his discretion as papal legate and tell the crusaders to go ahead and unleash the dogs of war? Seems like quite a stretch. But maybe. If anyone knows more about Peter of Capua, please message me, because I'm really curious, but honestly, I don't know if anyone really knows what was going on in this papal legate's head at this time. Either way, Alexios Dukas does not delay. He does not wait for the Crusaders to bring the battle to the city of Constantinople once again. He leads the Byzantine army out of the city personally, and he attempts to defeat the Crusaders in open battle. Now, both of the sources I'm using, uh, Geoffrey of Villehardouin and Robert of Clery, they both make much of the fact that the emperor, Alexios Dukas, carries an icon of the Virgin Mary into this battle. And he does this because there is a tradition in Constantinople that anyone who carries the icon, this painting or maybe a banner, we're not really sure, anyone who carries it into battle cannot be defeated. Robert of Clary says, with a bit of foreshadowing, that, quote, because Mortzopheles did not carry it rightfully, we believe he was discomfited. Unquote. The other point to this icon being that for both sides now, this fight has become explicitly religious, explicitly a battle of Roman Catholics against Greek Orthodox Christians trying to defend their city. Now, Alexios Dukas does not lead some kind of frontal assault in this battle. As a matter of fact, uh, he sets up an ambush. There is a crusader force returning from plundering one of the suburbs. And Robert of Clary describes the fight as follows. He says, quote, Mortzopheles waited for them on their return, 
and when he was come within a league of our people, he lay in wait with his folk and laid his ambushes. And our people knew not a word of this, but they were returning apace, nor knew they aught of this snare. When the Greeks saw them, they cried out, and our Franks looked at one another. When they saw the Greeks, they were sore afraid, and loudly did they begin to call on God and Our Lady. And they were so dismayed that they knew not what counsel to take, but said to one another, By our faith, if we flee now, we are all dead men. Better doth it become us to die defending ourselves than to flee. Then they halted and stood still, and they took some eight crossbowmen that they had with them, and set these before themselves. And the emperor Mortzophiles, the traitor, and the Greeks came toward them very swiftly, and smote them fierce and fell. But through God's mercy, never a one of the Franks did they unhorse. When the Franks saw the Greeks thus rushing upon them from every side, they let fall their lances and drew the knives and daggers that they had, and began to defend themselves right heartily, and they slew many of them. And when the Greeks saw that the Franks were discomfiting them thus, they began to be discouraged and turned about and fled. But our Franks overtook them and slew many of them, and many of them they kept for ransom and got great gain thereby. And they chased the Emperor Mordsophiles more than half a league, for they ever thought to take him. But he and they of his company hastened so that they let fall the icon and his imperial cloak and the ensign with the icon, which was all of gold and set with rich and precious stones. And it was so beautiful and rich that never was aught else seen so beautiful and rich. When the Franks saw this, they left off the chase, and were most exceeding glad, and they took the image and bore it away with very great joy and rejoicing. Unquote. And somebody, one of the crusaders, recognizes that this icon that the emperor Mortzophiles, Alexios Dukas, dropped, and they realize that this is of great importance to the Byzantines, so they put it up on the stern of one of the Byzantine galleys, right, the highest part of the ship, and they row the ship back and forth in front of the city walls to show the Byzantines that the icon has been captured. And not long thereafter, on April 8th, 1204, the Crusaders themselves go on the offensive. They attempt an assault by sea, and they do this with siege ladders positioned on top of the highest parts of the ships. So the idea is to roll these galleys as close up to the wall as possible, right? this part of the wall of Constantinople that's directly on the sea, and then some crusaders will climb up these ladders and try and get across into the towers. Well, even under ideal conditions, this is not an easy maneuver, and weather conditions are horribly unfavorable on April 8th, and a number of the ships are sunk, and on top of it, any time one of these ships does get close enough to a tower for someone to try and get across. There are too many people on the towers and not enough attackers on the ships for the attack to actually be successful. 
and at the end of the day, on April 8th, the Crusaders are forced to withdraw. Now, at this point, a number of the common soldiers begin speculating that this failure, particularly the foul weather, is a sign of divine disapproval. Maybe God doesn't want us attacking these Byzantines. Maybe we should stop. Well, once again, the papal legate and his clergy reassure the crusaders publicly that all is right with God. They urge all the men to confess their sins, and they even have the prostitutes sent out of the camp. These people are supposedly on a holy war, but... Hey, boys will be boys, I guess, right? Anyway, there is to be no more of that. Now they are to be truly pious warriors, at least officially. And a few days later, on April 12th, the Crusaders make another attempt. Now they make a couple of minor modifications to their strategy. Uh, Primarily, they lash their ships together. They tie pairs of them together with rope so that when a ship gets close to a tower, there will be two attacking ships for each tower, two siege ladders for the defenders to contend with. And not only that, but the winds on this day are favorable. And this time, some of the crusaders are able to infiltrate two of the towers. Here's how Robert of Clary describes the event. He says, quote, And so did they continue the assault, until the ship of the Bishop of Soissons fell foul of one of these towers, by a miracle of God, even as the sea which is never quiet bore it on. And on the bridge of the ship were a Venetian and two armed knights. And so soon as the ship hath fallen foul of this tower, the Venetian layeth hold with his hands and feet as best he can, and getting himself at last within the tower. When he was within, and when the men-at-arms who were in this story, English, Danes, and Greeks who were keeping guard there, when these espied him, they rushed upon him with axes and swords and cut him all in pieces. And as the sea bore the ship forward again, again did she fall foul of the tower. And when she was thus afoul of it, what did one of the two knights do? Andrew of Duraboise was his name. But lay hold with his feet and hands to the tower until he got himself up inside it, upon his knees. But when he was inside, upon his knees, the foe fell upon him with axes and with swords, and smote him sore. But since he wore his armor, thanks be to God, they wounded him not. For so was God guarding him, who would not consent that the Greeks should longer endure, or that this man should die. Nay, rather, it was God's will, because of their treason and because of the murder that Mordzophiles had committed, and because of their faithlessness, that the city should be taken, and that they should all be put to shame. For the knight rose up on his feet, and when he was on his feet he drew his sword. When these saw him on his feet again, so dumbfounded were they, and so greatly afraid, that they fled thence into the story underneath. And when they that were in this other story saw those from the above fleeing, then did they quit this story also, 
nor ever durst they remain there any longer. And the other knight came in after the first, and after him came in folk aplenty. And when they were within, they took strong ropes and stoutly lashed that ship to the tower. And when they had made her fast, there came in yet another folk aplenty. But when the sea again bore the ship backward, then did the tower quake so violently that it seemed certain that the ship must pull it down, so that perforce, because of this fear, it behooved them to cut the ship adrift. And when they that were in the other stories beneath saw that the tower was filling with franks, then were they so greatly afraid that never a one of them durst remain there, but they forsook the whole tower. And Mordsopheles indeed saw all this, but he encouraged his people, and sent them thither where he saw that the chiefest assault was made. In the meantime, when this tower had been taken by such a miracle, the ship of my lord Peter of Brichot fell afoul of another tower, and when it had fallen foul thereof, then began they that were upon the bridge of the ship to storm this tower so exceedingly fiercely that, by a miracle of God, this tower also was taken. Unquote. Now this might seem like a complete catastrophe for the Byzantines, and it's bad, but these crusaders are stuck within those two towers. The ships were not able to stay connected to them. They had to pull back. And now these crusaders are surrounded by Byzantines on the walls and in the city, and they need help. Well, around this same time, some French soldiers managed to break through a small postern gate. That's like a normal person-sized door in the wall. That's for messengers and such to come through. And they managed to hack through it with some axes and break an opening where someone can get through. And actually, according to Robert of Clary, his own brother is the first to enter the city. Now, this might seem like family boasting, but it so happens that Geoffrey of Villehardouin agrees, so maybe it's accurate. At any rate, now the Crusaders have broken through a small door in the wall right near those towers. Alexios Dukas, Mortsopheles, he recognizes this danger, and he personally leads a cavalry charge to push these knights back. But it seems that he is not willing to press home the attack. He is counting on the terror of the charge to break the knights and cause them to run. And when they don't, he turns around, pulls his force back, and retreats further into the city. And these French knights then break open a larger gate from the inside and transport ships come right up onto the beach and gangways drop and soldiers and mounted knights start streaming out and through this larger gate and into Constantinople. Now the city is falling. And Alexius Dukas seems to recognize this danger. He gathers up as much gold as he can physically collect, and he and a few followers flee to Bulgaria, of all places, 
because the deposed former emperor, Alexios III, is still up there in rebellion. And now Alexios Dukas is going to go ask him for sanctuary. Well, this leaves the rest of the Byzantine nobility in a bit of a pickle, because they suddenly have no emperor, so they appoint a new emperor that night, a man named Lascaris. And Lascaris takes a quick look around, decides that the siege is a lost cause, and he himself basically follows in Alexius Dukas's footsteps. He gathers as much gold as he can, and he takes off, but... He doesn't go north to Bulgaria. He instead hops on a galley and makes his way across to Anatolia and flees to the city of Nicaea. And there he would actually found a successful exile kingdom made up of Byzantine refugees. And that kingdom would continue for quite some time, but... His smart call, in the long term, does not help the people in Constantinople right now, on the night of April 12th, 1204. The next day, the Crusaders finish off their conquest of the city. They set more fires, and even as the fires blaze they begin to loot the city. And this looting would go on for three days. The next several chapters of Robert of Clary's account are nothing but a list of descriptions of beautiful churches and their relics and their riches, and what's left out of these accounts and the other crusader accounts are the rapes and the murders and the looting. Women of all ages are raped. Ancient statues are melted down or simply carved up as spoils. The most famous being a bronze sculpture of Hercules, which had been commissioned by none other than Alexander the Great. Estimates of the total value stolen rage as high as nearly a million silver marks. But again, it's tough to put an exact dollar amount on it. How do you value an irreplaceable bronze statue commissioned by Alexander the Great? Imagine one of today's great cities, a London or a Paris or a New York being stripped to its bones. Not just the homes and the stores, but the public buildings and the museums and all of their treasures. And out of all the buildings in Constantinople, the Orthodox churches fare the worst of all, where the altars are hacked to pieces and any metal or gems of value are taken. And in the face of all this rampant destruction, any Byzantine who resists, and 
many who don't, are killed. There is a lament by the Byzantine chronicler Nicetus, who writes, quote, O city, city, I of all cities, universal boast, supramundane wonder, wet nurse of churches, leader of the faith, guide of orthodoxy, beloved topic of orations, the abode of every good thing. O city, that is drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. O city, consumed by a fire far more drastic than the fire which of old fell upon the Pentapolis, by which he means the fall of the Roman Empire, what shall I testify to thee? To what shall I compare thee? The cup of thy destruction is magnified, says Jeremiah, who was given to tears as he lamented over ancient Zion. What malevolent powers have desired to have you, and have taken you to be sifted? What jealous and relentless avenging demons have made a riotous salt upon you in wild revel? If these implacable and crazed suitors neither fashioned a bridal chamber for thee, nor lit a nuptial torch for thee, did they not, however, ignite the coals of destruction? Unquote. When the dust settles after the sack of the city, the Byzantine Empire, the last remnant of the ancient Roman Empire, is divided up between the various crusaders. The European Balkan possessions go to various crusader knights, uh, and much of the Greek coast and most of the Aegean islands go to the Venetians. The knights want lands, which they can rule over, and the Venetians want coastal territory where they can trade and where their navies can defend it. And Count Baldwin of Flanders, a 31-year-old and uncontroversial candidate is elected as the new Roman emperor, which is still the official title of the individual who would rule Constantinople and a few miles outside it. And as for the city of Constantinople itself, well, Emperor Baldwin would not even control all of that. Venice would control three-eighths of the city, and a further three-eighths would belong to a coalition of Latin lords, leaving just a quarter of the city belonging to the emperor. And, as a matter of fact, Enrico Dandolo would also have an imperial title. At the age of 97, he would take the title Dominus Quarte et Dimidiae Partis Romaniae, which means Lord of a Fourth and Half of a Fourth of the Roman Empire. Now, Alexius Ducas, also known as Morsefles, well, 
he himself would die shortly after the fall of Constantinople. The old Emperor Alexius III would first allow him to marry his daughter and then betray his new son-in-law, blind him, and hand him over to the Crusaders. And at this point, Alexius Ducas would be thrown to his death from the column of Theodosius in Constantinople. His crime? Well, it was treason and the murder of emperors Isaac and Alexius IV. And his sentencing would be one of Enrico Dandolo's last public acts, with the old doge famously saying that a man so high in birth should die falling from a high place. Now, Enrico Dandolo did not long outlive Alexius Ducas. He would die less than a year after the sack of Constantinople of natural causes at the age of 98. He would be buried in the Hagia Sophia. Now, during the Ottoman conquest, a few centuries later, his tomb would be destroyed, but a 19th century team of Italian archaeologists would install a plaque in the Hagia Sophia to mark the spot, and that plaque remains to this day. Baldwin of Flanders, the new Byzantine emperor, would also die within a year. He would die while putting down a rebellion in the Balkans. He would be succeeded by his brother Henry and then by a series of other Latin kings, but you can see from the fact that Baldwin died fighting a rebellion, again, less than a year after the sack of Constantinople, you can see how hard it would be for the Crusaders to actually hold this Byzantine territory, or former Byzantine territory, and indeed it is. Few of the Balkan Latin kingdoms would survive the century. Now, when they divided up the Byzantine Empire, the Crusaders did not account for its Anatolian holdings, right? the Asian part of the Byzantine Empire, and it is there that Lascaris, the last legitimate Byzantine emperor, however brief his tenure, well, it was there that he would form a new empire in Anatolia centered around Nicaea, which would come to be called the Nicene Empire. And the Crusaders paid very little attention to this. Number one, all the Latin knights were busy trying to pacify their own realms. And number two, they probably assumed that alone in Anatolia with a lot of Muslim powers... Lascaris was going to need a lot of help, but in fact, the Nicene Empire would be fueled by a stream of Greek refugees, not just from Constantinople, but from all around the old Byzantine Empire. Greek refugees who wanted to live in a Greek empire, not a Latin kingdom. And 
Over the next few decades, after beating back both Muslim and Christian opponents, the successors of Lascaris would ultimately retake Constantinople in 1261 and reform a part of the Byzantine Empire, although it would never be what it once was. And for those of you who have been paying attention all the way since the beginning of last episode, well, you might be wondering about Alexius III, this guy who started all of this chain of events by overthrowing Emperor Isaac II. Well, he himself would flee Bulgaria and go down to Anatolia, and he would cut a deal with a Turkish warlord to try and take over Nicaea from Lascaris. And after being defeated in battle and captured by Lascaris, Alexios III would spend the rest of his life confined to a monastery. So much for the people involved in our story. What about relations between the Eastern and the Western churches? What about the divide between Eastern and Western Christianity, which had previously been just a few points of doctrine to be ironed out? Suffice it to say that that divide had become far more significant. As a matter of fact... Innocent III himself would sum things up nicely. Here is most of a letter he wrote to Peter of Capua, his legate who had encouraged the Crusaders. Innocent III wrote, quote, It was your duty to attend to the business of your legation and to give careful consideration not to the capture of the Empire of Constantinople, but rather to the defense of what is left of the Holy Land and with the Lord's leave, the restoration of what has been lost. We made you our representative, and we sent you to gain not temporal, but rather eternal riches. And for this purpose, our brethren provided adequately for your needs. We have just heard and discovered from your letters that you have absolved from their pilgrimage vows and their crusading obligations all the crusaders who have remained to defend Constantinople from last March to the present. It is impossible not to be moved against you, for you neither should nor could give any such absolution. Who ever suggested such a thing to you, and how did they ever lead your mind astray? How, indeed, is the Greek Church to be brought back into ecclesiastical union and to a devotion for the apostolic see when she has been beset with so many afflictions and persecutions that she sees in the Latins only an example of perdition and the works of darkness? so that she now, and with reason, detests the Latins more than dogs. As for those who were supposed to be seeking the ends of Jesus Christ, not their own ends, whose swords, which they were supposed to use against the pagans, are now dripping with Christian blood, they have spared neither age nor sex. They have committed incest, adultery, and fornication before the eyes of men. They have exposed both matrons and virgins, even those dedicated to God, to the sordid lusts of boys. Not satisfied with breaking open the imperial treasury and plundering the goods of princes and lesser men, 
They also laid their hands on the treasures of the churches and, what is more serious, on their very possessions. They have even ripped silver plates from the altars and have hacked them to pieces among themselves. They violated the holy places and have carried off crosses and relics. Furthermore, under what guise can we call upon the other Western peoples for aid to the Holy Land and assistance to the Empire of Constantinople? When the Crusaders, having given up the proposed pilgrimage, return absolved to their homes. When those who plundered the aforesaid empire turn back and come home with their spoils free of guilt. Will not people then suspect that these things have happened not because of the crime involved, but because of your deed? Let the Lord's word not be stifled in your mouth. Be not like a dumb dog unable to bark. Rather, let them speak these things publicly. Let them protest before everyone, so that the more they rebuke you before God and on God's account, the more they will find you simply negligent. As for the absolution of the Venetian people being falsely accepted against ecclesiastical rules, we will not at present argue with you. Unquote. I think it's safe to say that Innocent III was displeased with the outcome of the Fourth Crusade. But regardless of whether the Pope was pleased or not, the damage had been done. The gap between the Eastern and Western churches had turned into a gaping chasm. And this split would have serious implications going forward. For one thing, it ended any pretense at the idea of Christendom. Christendom was this idea of a loose confederation of bickering Christian states under the supreme authority of the Pope and Ultimately, everybody would all get along. Well, there was to be no more of that. Like the Muslim caliphates, which still officially existed at this time, religion had failed to fully unite a massive swath of people across a very large area and from even different empires. And the Division between Eastern and Western Christianity remained, and it shaped history. Right? There is strife in the Balkans to this day, in large part, thanks to ethnic identities based in part on a particular flavor of Christianity. Another thing we can thank the East-West split for is the very existence of Russia. at least in its current form as a coherent idea. The myth of Moscow as the third Rome, successor to the heretical pope and the conquered Constantinople, this idea fuels Russian nationalist propaganda to this day. And what about a little country called Turkey? The descendant of the Ottoman Empire. Well... There's a good chance, if Constantinople hadn't been sacked in 1204, that it wouldn't have fallen to the Ottomans in 1453. 
Imagine how different history looks in that case. So it's safe to say that the Catholic-Orthodox split is pretty significant. And yet, while this split is centuries old, it is not necessarily permanent. All things under the sun must come to an end. In 1965, Pope Paul VI and Patriarch Athenagoras I formally lifted the mutual excommunication the two offices had placed on each other in 1054. It only took 911 years. But still, divisions remain even in our less religious age. And those divisions as expressed in culture and nationalism, well, those shape how people understand themselves and their place in the world. We'll end today with the words of Pope John Paul II, spoken during a visit to Athens in 2001. 797 years after the sack of Constantinople, he said, quote, some memories are especially painful, and some events of the distant past have left deep wounds in the minds and hearts of people to this day. I am thinking of the disastrous sack of the imperial city of Constantinople, which was for so long the bastion of Christianity in the East. It is tragic that the assailants, who had set out to secure free access for Christians to the Holy Land, turned against their own brothers in the faith. The fact that they were Latin Christians fills Catholics with deep regret. To God alone belongs judgment, and therefore we must entrust the heavy burden of the past to his endless mercy, imploring him to heal the wounds which still cause suffering to the spirit of the Greek people. Unquote. And that's why it's relevant. Again, it's Dan, and I'm back to remind you that there is much, much more to relevant history on Patreon. If you click the Patreon link in the episode description and sign up for the very low and reasonable price of $5 per month, you will get access to our private Discord server for Patreon members, where I'm available most days, and you will also get access to a free monthly video, which I'm sure you will enjoy since it stars yours truly. Finally, Patreon members get a shout-out when they sign up, so you will hear your own name at the beginning of a Relevant History episode, which I'm sure is worth far more to you than any other reward. But if financial support doesn't work for you, that is just fine. Relevant History will always be free on all platforms, and you can still help us grow our audience. You can do this by leaving a review on 
Apple Music or Google Music or Spotify or wherever you listen. Or if you're listening on a video site like YouTube, well, hit the like button. That helps us reach more people. Finally, share with your friends. If you found this episode valuable or found another episode valuable, let other people know and see if they can't join the family here. And for all the latest news, make sure to follow me on Facebook. You can find the show there at facebook.com slash Podcast. That's Dan, T-O-L-E-R, podcast. And you can also find us on Twitter at Dan Toller Podcast. That's Dan, T-O-L-E-R, podcast. Finally, if you'd like to reach out for any reason, whether because you like the show or because I got something completely wrong and you want to correct me, well, send me an email. You can reach me at dantollerpodcast at gmail.com. That's dan, T-O-L-E-R, podcast at gmail.com. And finally... For everything else, including my blog, which I may start updating in the future, you can find all of that at dantollerpodcast.com. That's dan, T-O-L-E-R, podcast.com. Thanks for listening.